Russia launches its largest yet wave of drone strikes on Kyiv. The attack started Saturday, coming in waves for more than six hours and leaving 17,000 people without power in the region, according to Ukraine's energy ministry. Plus, as Ukraine's forces continue their counteroffensive, mines and explosives continue to threaten its people in deoccupied regions. Depending on the resources, it can take decades for Ukraine to clean its land and it will rely on international community to assist. And later in the program, a Russian woman says she wants to run for president and end the war in Ukraine while restoring Moscow's relations with the West. Today is Monday, November 27th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London in Washington. Russia launched its largest drone strike to date on Ukraine over the weekend. Kiev says it destroyed all but one, but falling debris caused several injuries and damaged buildings. We hear more from VOA's Arash Arbasadi. An air raid siren blares amid a Russian drone attack on the Ukrainian capital. The head of the capital city administration, Serhiy Popko, called it the most massive air attack by drones on Kyiv. Ukraine's air force said it shot down 74 of the 75 Iranian-made drones. The attack started Saturday, coming in waves for more than six hours and leaving 17,000 people without power in the region, according to Ukraine's energy ministry. It also came on the 90th anniversary of the Holodomor famine genocide. Holodomor, which means death by hunger or starvation, was a campaign through 1932 and 33 orchestrated by then-Soviet leader Joseph Stalin to seize control of Ukraine's grain production. At least three and a half to seven million Ukrainians died. According to the University of Minnesota, those numbers may be understated. It was against this backdrop that Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney recorded a video message to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on Holodomor Memorial Day. She said her government welcomed Kyiv's resolve to continue the Grain from Ukraine humanitarian food program, announcing a further contribution of $2.2 million to the effort. As part of the program, Ukraine partnered with countries and private sector donors to supply its grain to countries in Africa and Asia that face malnutrition and hunger. At a recent meeting of the UN Security Council, Ukraine's permanent representative to the United Nations accused Moscow of again using similar tactics as those in the early 1930s. Starvation is one of Russia's methods of warfare has encompassed various components since day one of the full-scale invasion. These include blocking Ukrainian food exports, shelling Ukrainian ports and grain stores, mining Ukrainian fertile soils, and turning them into battlefields. Following Russia's drone strikes, Zelensky and European leaders met in Kyiv at an international summit on food security. He said foreign partners would supply Ukraine with vessels to accompany and secure convoys of cargo ships from Ukraine's ports. Zelensky added his country hoped to solve air defense shortages through new supplies from partners and increasing Ukraine's own production capacity before another air raid siren cut short the joint news conference. At least five civilians in Kyiv were wounded in Russia's assault on the capital, with several buildings damaged from falling debris, including a kindergarten. 
Those injured include an 11-year-old child, according to Mayor Vitaly Klitschko. Arash Basadi, VOA News. And for reaction on the ground following the weekend bombardment on Ukraine's capital, I spoke with Anna Chernikova in Kyiv. As we just reported, this really intense weekend of bombardment of uh, Russian drones. And you, of course, are in Kyiv. Tell us about what you experienced. Saturday night was probably one of the toughest nights since full-scale invasion uh, in terms of the intensity of the attacks and particularly intensity of drone attacks. And uh, I personally didn't sleep for the whole night as as most of Kyiv citizens. It was quite uh, loud. The drones were attacking Kyiv for more than six hours starting in two o'clock in the morning and ending almost at nine o'clock in the morning. And air defense was active for all this time. So it was, you know, kind of couple of waves of the drones going and targeting Kyiv. And also there were reports from air defense uh, during the attack that drones are on the way to other regions. But then at one point they suddenly turned and all of them basically were targeting the capital. So it was quite a big stress for adults, for children, for animals, for pets as well. Well, a lot of people were hospitalized even with with stress and also pets are, are suffering quite much. And did you have to take shelter underground in the bomb shelter when that was happening? We were taking shelter, yes, because it was quite dangerous this night and uh, we were taking shelter. We did not go to the parking lot this time, but we were taking shelter in our apartment in a special place. There are obviously concerns about potential attacks during the upcoming winter season, which is sounds like it's already upon upon you with the power grid facing pressure already Monday from the snowstorm that knocked out electricity. Yes, you're right. This weekend was also a weekend that Ukraine was covered with uh, a bad snowstorm, particularly south regions of the country and central part of the country. Kyiv, the, the capital, is also under quite a heavy snowfall. And of course, the temperature goes down. And this is actually what Ukrainians expected that the Russian forces will start more intensive attacks when uh, the temperature goes down. And it looks like that this period has began and Ukrainians expect more. Anna Chernikova reporting for VOA from Kyiv. Well, as Ukraine's forces continue their counteroffensive, mines and explosives continue to threaten its people in deoccupied regions. According to the Ukrainian government, since the start of the Russian invasion, mines have killed at least 264 civilians and injured more than 830. Demining efforts led by various entities are actively underway. Miroslava Gungadze has the story. On Saturday morning, the mining crew in Balakliya, Ukraine's Kharkiv region, are getting ready to go to the field. Russian forces had occupied one-third of this region shortly after the start of the war. When they retreated months later, they left this land contaminated with mines. Such weapons have killed at least 264 civilians and injured more than 830 throughout Ukraine since Russia's full-scale invasion in February 2022. Emergency personnel here face an unprecedented test, says Anatoly Vrublevsky, the head of the Kharkiv region's demining directorate and overseer of 35 
the mining units. Rublevsky says that the biggest problem is that people are killed or injured daily. 30% of the oblast had been occupied, he says. After a counteroffensive operation, it was liberated, and now his team have very dangerous territory to work on. Rublevsky says international support is crucial to their work. Ukrainian miners make use of all outside assistance, which includes the mining machines, protective gear, and transportation. Here in Balaklia, emergency services detect a mine and conduct a controlled explosion. Back in Kyiv, the Ukrainian government coordinates the humanitarian demining effort, bringing together government stakeholders and international partners. Deputy Minister of Economy Igor Beskorovainy oversees the initiative, which for him is personal. In 2016, he lost his leg to an anti-tank mine. We want return to using 80% potentially contaminated area. Beskorovainy says Russia violated all norms and practices when it mined the territory, and this poses a significant challenge for the miners. Ukrainian specialists are working on techniques to scan potentially contaminated areas to create a database and map for future demining efforts. We have situation when territories that contamination have any logic. It's a huge problem because we can predict the next step when we're working with the logic, but we can't predict the next step when we're working with situations that don't have any logic. Last spring, the World Bank estimated that Ukraine would require $37.5 billion for the mining efforts. However, the need continues to evolve with the war and requires constant reevaluation. Lutvenia is spearheading the European Union's demining efforts in Ukraine. Thomas Matulevichus, the economic attaché of the Lithuanian embassy in Ukraine, says the international coalition must do more. It's not enough for the moment, but it's just the beginning. And in the future, we hope that it will be more tools, more methods, more financial instruments and the more, I would say, funds or the government will join the coalition. It depends how much money it will be, how much specialists will be prepared here in Ukraine and abroad. So it depends from all us and uh, we need to do that together. The unprecedented contamination of Ukrainian land with mines and other explosives destroying ecosystem and undermining food security in Ukraine and the world, deepening the problem of hunger. Depending on the resources, it can take decades for Ukraine to clean its land and it will rely on international community to assist with the demining effort. Miroslava Gongadze, POA News, Balaklia, Kharkiv region, Ukraine. NATO Foreign Minister are meeting in Brussels to discuss a number of issues, including the Middle East and Russia's war on Ukraine, as concerns have been voiced in recent weeks about Ukraine's progress. In a news conference Monday, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg noted achievements by Ukraine's military that can be measured, he says, by more than just meters of territory on the front line. Even though the front line has not moved, uh, the Ukrainians have been able to inflict heavy uh, losses on uh, the Russian invaders, uh, both measured in personnel and uh, casualties, but also in taking out uh, fighting capabilities. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is also attending the meetings this week. The State Department says he plans to highlight the NATO alliance's ongoing support for Ukraine in its war with Russia, even as the war in Gaza continues.
You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. It's been 10 years since pro-European protesters gathered in Kyiv's Independence Square, events that would lead to the ousting of pro-Kremlin president Viktor Yanukovych and Russia's forceful annexation of Crimea. Now, as Russia's full-scale war on the country rages, Ukraine's future in the European Union is set to be decided at a summit in Brussels, Henry Ridgewell reports. A moment that changed the fate of a nation. In late November 2013, Ukraine's then-president Viktor Yanukovych pulled out of signing an association agreement with the European Union under pressure from Russia. Thousands of protesters filled Kyiv's Maidan Square, waving the blue and gold EU colours. Among them was Dmitro Riznichenko. He said we wanted to find human dignity. We wanted freedom. After a brutal police crackdown, thousands more Ukrainians joined the protests from across the country. Some 108 protesters were killed in what became known as the Revolution of Dignity. Yanukovych stepped down in February 2014 and fled to Russia. Olga Tokaryuk, who now works for the British policy group Chatham House, was among the protesters. We had no idea what was ahead. Of course, we could not have imagined that there would be Russia's invasion and that there would be war that would last for nine years already, that there would be Russia's full-scale invasion, that millions of Ukrainians would have to leave their homes, thousands would be killed in this war. Many of the people who were on the square in Maidan would be killed in this war. Russia forcefully annexed Crimea in March 2014 and fomented a separatist war in eastern Ukraine. Ukraine elected a pro-Western government and demanded EU membership. But Brussels said Ukraine wasn't ready, and that proved fateful, says Tokaryuk. Ultimately, that's what compelled Russia to invade Ukraine on a large scale, because Ukraine was just left in this limbo. It was left as a buffer zone. Ukraine is now engaged in a full-scale war against Russia. More than 10,000 civilians have been killed since Moscow's invasion in February 2022. Next month, European leaders meet to decide whether to begin formal negotiations on Ukraine's EU accession. Marking the 10th anniversary of the protests, Ukraine's president said it was his country's destiny. 20 years ago, he said, it was a romantic dream. 10 years ago, it was an ambitious goal. And today it is a reality in which it is no longer possible to stop our progress. The president of the European Council, Charles Michel, offered his support. I intend to do everything to convince my 27 colleagues that we need a positive decision in December. It's vital that the EU offers Ukraine hope for the future, says Tokaryuk. It will be a morale boost. It will be a blow to Russia, of course, because that would mean that Ukraine has once and for good departed from the so-called Russian sphere of influence. EU accession would require large-scale reform of Ukraine's governance and economy. The decision is expected at a two-day EU Heads of State summit in Brussels beginning December 14th.
Henry Ridgewell, VOA News, London. Ekaterina Donsova, who wants to run for president in Russia, told Reuters that the Kremlin should end the conflict in Ukraine, free political prisoners, and undertake major reform to halt the slide of division between Russia and the West. Sean Hogan with Reuters has more. Yekaterina Dontsova wants to end Vladimir Putin's reign and in turn the conflict in Ukraine. The former regional TV journalist hopes to be Russia's next president. I expect that we will negotiate in the future. Any conflict, including an armed one, comes to an end sooner or later. I do wish it was over as soon as possible. The 40-year-old announced her desire to run in next year's elections this month, but she told Reuters in this sit-down interview she is afraid and has been warned about speaking too much to foreign correspondents. It is clear that any sane person taking this step would be afraid. But fear must not win, because there is a goal. And it is important to me not to cheat those people who write to me expressing their support, who call me their hope. That hope includes a promise to free political prisoners and undertake major reform to halt division between Russia and the West. Russian laws can prosecute those who criticise what the Kremlin calls a special military operation in Ukraine. So Duntsova refused to use the word war to describe the conflict. Choosing her words carefully, she says she is not a pawn being used to legitimise the election and denies any links to the Kremlin. Despite the very substantial support for Putin, the people are very tired of what's happening. The families who lost their fathers, brothers, husbands, sons, they do suffer very much. Dunsova needs 300,000 signatures to stand in the March election. Russian state media ignore her. Putin is expected to run and is certain to win if he does. Opposition politicians cast the vote as a fig leaf of democracy adorning a corrupt dictatorship saying such elections often draw in weak candidates to give the pretense of competition. Putin supporters dismiss that, pointing to independent polling, showing approval ratings of over 80%. Every day it becomes clearer that the laws will become tougher and that there will be fewer and fewer rights and freedoms. Some people may even like it because they do not need to make decisions. There is a category of people who are very comfortable when others make decisions for them. But we are talking about people who want to think. They are depressed by the situation when they can't speak or act freely. That report brought to us from Sean Hogan with Reuters. Meanwhile, Moscow fears exiled Russian opposition will influence upcoming presidential elections. We hear more from Polygraph Info. President Vladimir Putin will run in Russia's March 2024 presidential election and likely remain in the Kremlin at least until 2030, Reuters reported on November 6th. Accused of war crimes in Ukraine and with key opposition figures imprisoned or exiled, Putin will face no political rival as he enjoys 80% public approval, Reuters said. Even so, the head of Russia's Central Election Commission, Ella Pamfilova, told a November 21st conference in Moscow, now, there will be presidential elections in March 2024, and already there is work being done by those scum who not only left, but who now earn their pitiful pennies by forming the basis to disrupt the elections, discredit the elections. That claim is partly true. 
The Russian opposition in exile is planning an anti-Putin campaign aimed at delegitimizing the March 2024 vote. On October 22nd, Russian opposition leaders and members of diaspora groups, political movements, and associations gathered in Berlin, Germany in a meeting promoted by Putin's longtime political rival, Mikhail Khodorkovsky. The participants agreed to launch a nationwide campaign against Putin ahead of the March election. Former State Duma member Dmitry Gutkov said the opposition hopes to engage opinion leaders, influential politicians, famous writers, popular artists, musicians, and actors to campaign against Putin. Still, Pamphilova's claim that exiled Russians will attempt to discredit the presidential election at home is misleading, given that international observers have recorded systematic violations in Russian elections since 2011. On October 13th, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe called on European countries to consider Putin's rule illegitimate if he remains in power after the 2024 election. Polygraph Info is a fact-checking website produced by Voice of America. The website serves as a resource for verifying the increasing volume of disinformation and misinformation being distributed and shared globally. Well, before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Natalia Drevyanikova was managing a women's shelter in the Kiev region, helping women in difficult situations. After the invasion, the shelter opened its doors to displaced women and those freed from captivity. Today, these women are taught to embroider and then get help finding employment. Irina Shinkarenko has the story narrated by Anna Rice. It's just the beginning. In the end, we'll have a shirt like this. The embroidery is typical to the Crimea region. Irina Kukina is from Crimea. Today, she is embroidering shirts. I miss Crimea a lot. How can I not miss it? I was born there. I hope to return to Ukrainian Crimea soon. Prior to Russia's annexation of Crimea, Kukina was head of a publishing house's branch office. After the 2014 annexation, she moved to Kiev. But in February 2022, her life was disrupted again by Russia's invasion. We set it at 17. That's the embroidery size we're working on. Today, Kukina works at Vilna Nitka, a former women's shelter in the Kiev region. Its founder, Natalia Drisvenikova, used to house women who found themselves in difficult situations, but after Russia's invasion, repurposed it to host displaced Ukrainian women, teaching them to do embroidery and then helping them get a job. I had no idea how to do embroidery before I got here, never done it in my life, but I'm working just fine, as you can see. I think it's in the blood of Ukrainian women, doing embroidery, doing stitch work. Not all the women who found work thanks to Vilna Nitka want to talk on camera, says entrepreneurship founder Natalia Drisvennikova. One of the women here spent over four years in captivity. Larissa gave us a call after she got freed from a prison in the so-called Luhansk People's Republic. She came to the Kiev region, no family, no clothes, no accommodation. She had a hard time adapting to new conditions. Located in Vyshgorod in the Kiev region, Vilna Nitka was able to buy all the necessary equipment for doing embroidery work thanks to the Ukrainian community in the U.S., including the Humanitarian Center at St. Andrew's Ukrainian Orthodox Cathedral in Maryland, near Washington, D.C. Volunteers at the center have placed large orders with Vilna Nitka, and thanks to the U.S.-Ukrainian community, 
Their embroidered shirts are gaining popularity in the U.S. This is a Vyshevanka from the Kherson region. This one is from Ivano-Frakivsk. This one was especially popular. It's the traditional Crimean embroidery style. We love the idea that we give work to women who were in a difficult situation, who have to raise kids alone. We're happy we can help them sell their embroidery work. American Susan Carboni already owns one Vyshevanka, but has just placed another order. I think it is absolutely beautiful. Much of it is symbolic, I'm sure, although I don't know what the symbols really are. But I would expect that all these patterns are very, very old, and so they do have great meaning for the people. In Vyshgorod, Ukrainian women continue to create beautifully embroidered pieces, often to the accompaniment of air raid signals. But they say it helps to keep their thoughts occupied, their hands busy, and them proud of what they do. For Irina Shankarenka in Washington, NRI's VOA News. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date, though, with continuing coverage on Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day at voanews.com. And on social media, just follow VOA News. On behalf of all of us here at VOA, we thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm Lori London.